Amen. All right, check this out. One day this politician, he gets hit, he gets hit by a truck and he dies. Yeah, you're supposed to have a little bit of sympathy. But anyway, so, anyway, so he, he died, right? Well, the next thing you know, he's in heaven, right? And he gets in heaven and guess who he sees? St. Peter. Peter Tom. It's always that. I tell you what. And, and so he says, well, hey, hey, welcome to heaven, man. And, um, but you know what? Before you settle in, there seems to be a little problem here. You see, um, we don't get many politicians around these parts, and uh, we're not sure what to do with you. And so the politician, he goes, well, hey, no problem. Just let me in. And Peter says, well, I'd like to, but I got some orders from higher up. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to let you spend one day in hell and then one day in heaven, and then you can choose where to spend eternity. Obviously, this is a joke. Okay. <laughs> it's not a good Bible. But anyway, and so the politician says, well, listen, I've already made up my mind. I want to be in heaven. And Peter said, hey, listen, we've got our rules. Just do it. So Peter sends the politician straight down into hell, man. And when he gets there, he finds himself right in the middle of a lush green golf course. And then in the distance, he sees a clubhouse with all his former friends, and they're having a great old time, full of joy. And, 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 and once they see him, they rush over him, they greet him, they start reminiscing about the good old times and getting rich at the expense of other people and stuff. And, and then they play around at golf, and they take this scenic drive all around hell and, and in this nice convertible. And, and then that night, they dine on lobster and caviar, and, and the politicians, he's having such a great time before he realized it was time to go. And so he gave everybody a big old hug. He waved goodbye, and he goes, whoop, right back up to heaven. And so he's up there in heaven, and he gets there, and Peter's waiting for him. He says, all right, now give heaven a try. So the guy, the politician, he spends the next 24 hours, he's floating around in heaven, moving from cloud to cloud. He's playing the harp, you know, all that stuff, right? He's doing that thing. He's singing along, right? And after 24 hours was up, Peter goes to him. He says, well, all right, you spend a day in hell and a day in heaven. Which one's it going to be? And so the politician responds, well, you know I, I never thought I'd say this to my life. Uh, heaven was nice and all, but you know what? I think I'd be better off in hell. No, that's not the end of the joke. Let me keep finishing. <laughs> so Peter sends him straight back into hell, when all of a sudden, he finds himself in the middle of a barren wasteland covered with filth and garbage. And now all of his friends are dressed in rags, and, and they're picking up trash. They're moaning and groaning in the sweltering heat. And the, and the politician, he stammers, he goes, I, I, I don't get this. I, I don't understand. I mean... Yesterday I was here and there was a golf course and we ate lobster and caviar and we danced. We had a great old time, but now I'm in this wasteland full of garbage. My friends, they look miserable and the devil looks at them and smiles and says, well, <laughs> of course, of all people you should understand, yesterday we were campaigning, but today you voted for us. <laughs> now does that sound familiar or what? Unfortunately, man, throughout the years, wow, what a trick. Okay, but unfortunately, did you know the politician is not the only one who's being fooled by mere appearances? Can anybody guess who else is? It's the world when they look at the lives of many Christians. Okay, because what are we doing? We're, we're, we're going around the whole time giving the appearance that we're the people of God, but what are we acting like? Practical atheists. We're acting like we don't even know who God is. As we've been seeing, folks, that's the problem, okay? It's not just detrimental in our walk with God. It gives it drives people away from God. That is some serious devilish behavior. So we're going to continue in our study on the character of God, okay? And we've already seen the first thing we need to know about God is what? He's real. That's the good news, okay, is the great news there. And not just he's real, we can really have what? A personal, loving, beautiful, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, okay? The third thing we saw about God, he is what? He is wise. He knows everything. He never gets it wrong. Why would you go anywhere else? In fact, he's also what? He is sovereign. He controls all things. And if you love him, do you love him? Raise your hand. 
Okay, guess what? Here's the good news. He'll work all things together for good, even the hard times. The hills and the valleys, we just sang about that. Okay, the fifth thing, God is what? He's powerful. Aren't you glad God can save anybody he wants? Huh? In fact, turn to somebody and say, that means you too. Okay, that's good news, man. Uh, he can save anybody he wants. He can fix any problem, solve any need, and supply any. It's just awesome. He's always on the throne. And speaking of which, he's what? He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Whew. And then finally, the icing on the cake the last seven times, especially good news in light of his holiness, is the seventh thing. God is love. He's not loving. He's not lovable. God is love itself. We've been seeing it's like a big old giant diamond, multifaceted. Let's take a look at this thing in a different facet each time. What does it mean that God is love? Well, we see that the Bible reveals that by God giving us mercy. He gives us compassion. He gives us kindness. He gives us graciousness. He gives us patience and faithfulness. And last time, he gives us goodness. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And we saw out of goodness, listen, God doesn't just what? He doesn't just save us from our sins, but he keeps on using us. Even after we still sin, he keeps on blessing us even after we sin. And then we saw he even keeps on loving us even after we sin. Is that good news or what? Well, Bobby, I'm still preaching on it, so guess what? There's got to be more, more, and you are so correct. There is. The eighth way the Bible reveals that God is love, here it is, folks. God's love is what? It's eternal. It's eternal. Now, this is great news, especially in light of what we've been seeing with our behavior, right? Right? How many of you guys have ever blown it since after you got saved? Raise your hand. The rest of you guys didn't raise your hand. You just lied. You blew it. You proved the point. Yeah, it happens. Guess what? Aren't you glad God didn't say, I'm done with you. Get out of here. His love is eternal. But don't take my word for it. Let's just take a one, one passage that I think kind of hopefully will drill it into your head. How long does God's love last? For his children. Psalm 136. Let's take a look there. We're not even going to read the whole chapter because I'm hoping after nine verses, you guys are sharp. After nine verses, you're going to kind of get the truth about God's love. How long does it last? Psalm 136. All right. Let's go ahead and stand as you turn there as we get ready to read God's word. Psalm 136. Okay. Verses one through nine. How long does God's love last? last let's take a look there psalm 136 verse 1 says this give thanks to the lord why because he's what he's good that's what we saw last time and he demonstrates that goodness by what his love endures how long forever give thanks to the god of gods because his love endures how long forever give thanks to the lord of lords his love endures forever to him who alone does great wonders his love endures forever who by his understanding made the heavens his love endures who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures. Who made the great lights, his love endures. The sun to govern the day, his love endures. And the moon and the stars to govern the night, his love endures how long? That's just nine verses. You may be seated, but I think you guys got the point. You don't need to read the whole chapter, even though it's a great chapter. Okay, but how many guys would say when it comes to the issue of God's love, how long does it last? Anybody getting impressed? Yeah, forever. How many times the God got to say it over and over and over and over again? And again, folks, this is great news, especially when we're honest with ourselves, even after getting saved, being the recipient of the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, being forgiven of all of our sins, and yet we still sin to know that God's love doesn't stop. But it just keeps on going, man. Makes that Energizer bunny look like a little flea. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on forever. That's good news. Okay. 
And we should enjoy that, okay? And, uh, but there's a problem, okay? I don't know if you guys know this, uh, but there's actually folks out there who would have you and I believe that God's love for his children does not endure forever. And they actually would say this. They would say that somehow at one point we could become a child of God and then somewhere along the line, boop, you can go back to being a child of the devil again. Can you believe that? Okay. And, uh, and, and the question is, well, why would people say that? That God's love in essence is not secure, right? That it's not eternal, that it doesn't last forever. When the Bible just said, this is just one text. How long does it endure? Forever, okay, over and over again. Well, the first reason, and we're going to do this in the next two uh, times, Lord one. The first reason why they would say that is because they've forgotten several things. And the first thing they've forgotten is the context. You need to pay attention to the whole thing. Anybody can take a verse out of context and twist the scripture to make it sound like it's saying something when it's not. And that's the same thing that these people do when they say, that. oh, no, if you read the Bible, you can lose your salvation. It's not a security. Excuse me? Let's take a look at those verses, the most popular ones. I don't have time to deal with all of them, but you'll get the theme. Okay, you get back to the context. It's not at all what the Bible's saying. God's love endures forever. Okay, now the first passage is that they rip out of context to get you and I to believe that somehow we can lose our salvation, okay, is Revelation chapter 3. Okay, let's take a look at that verse. Okay, and here's oftentimes what they do. Revelation 3, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. Okay, verse 15 through 16, he says this, I know your deeds, Jesus speaking, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, I wish you were one or the other, okay? So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Ah, there it is, a Christian, we can lose our salvation. Ah. Now, no, if you rip this out of context, you can maybe twist it to say that, but that's not what is going on here, okay? Uh, a Christian cannot be spit out of the mouth of God. That's not what this passage is talking about, okay? On the surface, if you wrench it out of the context, that's what they want to do. But let's take a look at the context. When John writes these letters to the seven churches of Asia, he draws this distinction between two groups of people, Christian and non-Christian. <gasps> Wait a second. Do non-Christians ever come to a church service? Uh, yeah. Okay, happens still today, okay? That's why we give the gospel, okay? And John draws this distinction. Well, you're making that up. No, read the scripture. He draws the distinction in all those seven letters by using terms like you and they. That means two groups of people, right? And the reason why we know these people he's talking about here, bleh, vomiting out of his mouth, is talking about non-Christians because Jesus says, you will know a teacher by their fruit, right? And how much fruit did these people have? Zero. They were neither cold nor hot. Explain what's going on there. In the, the text there, you had the, the community there was surrounded by two different sources of water. One was hot, okay, and one was refreshingly cold, right? And he was saying, listen, you're good for nothing, basically. You're not this hot one. You, you guys ever live like I used to for five years in the frozen tundra in New York? Okay, when you're coming out of shoveling that snow, what do you want? I just want a hot cup of cocoa or a hot coffee. You want something hot. I mean, that's awesome. That's refreshing. That's what he's talking about. You're not hot. And, but also, how many guys are, Vegas gets a little toasty. You're working in the backyard, right? You come in the house. What do you want? I want a hot coffee. Blech. No, you don't. What do you want? I want a cold glass of water. I want some cold iced tea. I want, I want something cold, right? And that's all he's saying here. Listen, you're not, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're this lukewarm. You, you come in from the house after shoveling snow, right? And you go to the tap water, and, and it's just, it's just, it's room temperature. Ugh. Have you ever had room temperature coffee? 
yeah, makes you do that too, <laughs> right? Or, or when you're coming out, of the, you're sweating bullets, man. You lost 18 pounds from sweat in your backyard. You're coming in, and then you get tepid water. Yeah, chicken soup would make you go to the hospital, right? <laughs> right? And then you go, oh, oh, that was so refreshing. I love room temperature water. Lukewarm is, mmm, and that's all he's saying. Listen, you guys, listen, you're imposters. You're neither cold, you're, not, you're good for nothing. These people were making Jesus want to puke, if you will, because they were posing to be Christians when the whole time they were imposters. Does that happen today? Yes. We'll get to that in great detail in just a little bit. Okay, so therefore this passage is not talking about Christians losing their salvation. Oh no, you could start out being a child of God, but if you're not careful, Jesus will puke you out of his mouth. No. He's talking about imposters. He's not talking about Christians. Okay, read the context. The second passage is, that they take out is these two, both in the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Oftentimes they throw out there. And they'll say this, write this, uh, chapter 6, 4 and 6. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Oh, no. And here's another one. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Oh, no, Larry, it's Christian. You can lose your salvation. No. Read the context right? Okay, on the surface, it may seem to see that. And again, anybody, Old New Testament, that's where so much false teaching comes from. You take any verse, wrench it out of its context, you could twist it into anything. And that's the same thing that's going on in both of these passages. Now, first of all, according to the context, we know that these people being spoken of here are not Christians either, because what did it say? It said they shared in, literally in the Greek, they partnered with the Holy Spirit. And folks, the Bible is clear, a true born-again Christian is not an external partner with the Holy Spirit. They're what? We're an internal possessor of the Holy Spirit, okay? It's not a Christian they're talking about. The point is he's trying to make here is these people have been enlightened. They've been offered to taste the goodness of the gospel externally, but they were never going to receive it internally. The context of both of these passages, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, is dealing with apostates. These are the people that they, listen, they'll never repent. They know what's the truth, but no amount of information is going to change their mind. Week after week after week, nothing's good enough for them. They refuse to act on it. Do we have that condition today? How many times, I, I, I've shared with you the story of the one lady I used to pastor. She said, Pastor Billy, if I were to have, not that long ago, she said, if I were to die, the church would have given me a Christian funeral, and yet I would have gone to hell. I was serving uh, in church leadership. I was teaching Sunday school class. I was a model Christian. She said, but I never bowed a knee before Jesus Christ. I never did. I sat there week after week after week. I heard the gospel. I knew the gospel. I gave mental assent. I knew it, but I never acted on it. Do we have that reality today? And it wasn't until she truly bowed a knee from her heart and received Christ that she get saved. But she's going to this. That's what he's talking about there. And, and again, if you don't believe there's two groups here, people saved and unsaved, apostates, the unsaved, the context clearly says over and over again, those who, those who, those who repeatedly speaking of the behavior of the apostate. Then he clarifies in verse nine, quote, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, quote, things that accompany salvation. 
not apostate behavior. The passages in both Hebrews 6 and 10 are not talking about a Christian losing your salvation. You can't. It's talking about people who never had salvation in the first place, and no matter how much you preach to them, they're never going to respond. We still deal with that even today. The third passage they take out of context is this one. It's 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 through 27. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, 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 no. I beat my body and uh, make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Oh, no, Holly, there it is. A Christian can lose your salvation. No, no. Read the context, okay? On the surface, if you rinse that out by itself, maybe you could twist it into that, but that's not at all what the context says. Now, first of all, in this context, nowhere in this passage does it even talk about salvation. Nowhere does it even mention salvation. What it's talking about is prizes or rewards, which is a whole different issue. And Paul is saying he's beating his body into submission, not out of fear that he's going to be disqualified for salvation, no, but because he doesn't want to be disqualified for his reward in heaven. He doesn't want to waste his life on the stupid things of this world. He wants to make sure that he invests it wisely for the glory of God. Is that a temptation for Christians today? To get seduced away into this wicked world system, we're saved and secure, but we have an opportunity to lay treasure at the feet of Jesus, Revelation 4. Not because we're earning our way there, just to say thank you for saving me. And that can be robbed if we give in to the temptation to live for this world instead of for those eternal treasures. That's all Paul's talking about. He's not talking about Christians losing out on heaven. He's talking about Christians losing out on the reward in heaven. Read the context. The fourth one is Galatians chapter 5. Let's take a look at that one. It's rimmed out of, uh, rinsed out of context too. Galatians 5, 3 through 4. Again, Paul says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by law. You have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Oh, we've fallen away from grace. Eddie, we could lose our salvation. We had a great start going and we messed it up. No, that's not at all what he's talking about again. Christians cannot fall away from their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. Now, according to the context, some of the Galatian believers were being enticed, being enticed by false teachers to make a fatal error. And that error was to go back to the Old Testament system of rules and regulations as a means to live the Christian life. And Paul was desperately trying to get them to see, listen, if you start obeying God out of legalism instead of love, listen, it's going to cut you off from the grace of God, i.e., it's going to short-circuit the power to live for God because God, as we already saw several weeks ago, God is the one who gives us the grace to live for him, right? In fact, the term that Paul used with these kind of people, this is, oh, no, it's Jesus, and you got to go back to the, you know, keep the festivals, and it's Jesus, and you can got to go back to the Sabbath. And, you know, Paul had a term from them. They were called Judaizers. Did you know they're coming back today? Except they're not called that because people would realize it's wrong. The new term is the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't care what you call yourself. If you're saying that I got to go back to that old system, that's how I live a better Christian life. I got to go back and I got to worship only on Saturdays, the Sabbath. I got to go back and do the festivals and stuff. That's Old Testament legalism. Paul, and that's what he's dealing with here, it's the same problem he dealt with 2,000 years ago. To the Galatian believers, this passage is not talking about Christians losing their salvation from God. It's talking about Christians being seduced to lose their power to live for God. 
Because once you go down that legalistic route, man, you get sucked dry spiritually. It's a bunch of rigmarole. Stand up, sit down, do this, right? And then it also lends to spiritual pride. Have you noticed that? Oh, if only you could be legalistic like me. <laughs> Paul says, no, the power comes by loving Jesus Christ, walking, living, keeping in step with his spirit. It's the spirit, okay, not the Old Testament passage. Now, again, there's more, but I just wanted to get you the idea that based on the context of Scripture, there is no reason, there is no reason, there's no reason for anybody to assume that somebody can become a child of God and somehow end up being a child of the devil again. The Bible is clear. When you get saved, God's love endures how long? Forever. And if somebody keeps pushing it, they're wrenching something out of its context. And that's their problem, okay, that they need to stop doing. Okay, the second reason why some people say that God's love's not eternal, you can lose your salvation, okay, is because they not only wrench the Bible out of context, but they forget about this category that's really kind of scary, but you got to deal with it. Because it answers some of these questions, okay? And that is the counterfeits. Did you know there's counterfeit Christians all over the place? Mm-hmm, right. And, and I bring this up because even though you can share the proper context like we did, we just went back in the context of all these verses that they throw out there. See, you can lose your salvation. You can, no, you can't. Read the context. You're taking it out of context. You can do that till you're blue in the face, okay? And, uh, but usually what happens, I don't know if you've run into this, but they say something like this. Well, yeah. They resort to experience. Well, first, first of all, experience doesn't determine truth. Get back to the scripture. But whatever. So they, oh, yeah? You mean to tell me you can't lose your salvation? I know of a guy, right? I know of a guy one time who supposedly went forward and received Christ as a savior and supposedly was really active in the church for a good year or however long and all this stuff, who supposedly loved Jesus, and then all of a sudden one day he turned and became an atheist. See? He lost his salvation. No, never had in the first place. Because the Bible says, believe it or not, those people were counterfeits. Because when you get saved, the scripture is very clear that God keeps his own. He seals you for the day of redemption. Okay, and we'll get into that later. Now, if you say counterfeits, are you serious? Yeah. You know who one of the biggest ones, the obvious ones in the scripture is? Judas Iscariot. John chapter 6. In fact, John 6, Jesus said, which is a deity passage because only God could do this. He said he knew who was going to betray him the whole time. Before it even happened. Right? That Judas was going to betray him. Judas was what? Judas was right there. Judas was in the mix. Judas was out there doing, quote, ministry and stuff. But was he saved? Absolutely not. He was a fake, and Jesus knew it from the very beginning, okay, that he was the one to betray him. And in fact, we also know that he wasn't seeking God for God. Judas was only seeking God for the money. money. The scripture says he had his hand in that bag. He sure loved collecting that stuff, and he liked spending it too, apparently, right? So that's another. Now, now, wait a second. Do people do that? Do people come to church services only because they want money? Happens today. In fact, it's even worse. You got people coming to church services, and you got false teachers from the pulpit say, hey, in fact, that's what it's all about. If you sow a seed into my ministry, give me 100 bucks, then you can have a, a Cadillac and Armani suit, $1,000, a hundredfold increase. Just give me money so you can get money. Same thing today. Bunch of baloney, folks. You make me go into your church service, but that, if that's all you're here for is money, that doesn't mean you're saved. You might be a counterfeit, okay? But not only that, I've noticed that, folks, people not only today, okay, counterfeit Christians are going to, quote, church And how many times have we said this? Going to a church service does not save you any more than being in a barn makes you a cow. Isn't that way better than that old one? Right? <laughs> Chicken thing, yeah, whatever. Right? You got to be born again, right? So, hey, I don't care. Okay, and, hey, putting on a suit. Hey, look, he's wearing a tie. He's got to be a Christian. 
No. Listen, people go to church services for all different kinds of reasons. doesn't mean they're saved. You want to know why the American church is so messed up today? It's because my theory is there's so many non-Christians in the church. And I'm talking even from behind the pulpit. We'll get to that in just a second. In fact, what I've noticed is a lot of people, even I've had to deal with them as a pastor over the years, on church leadership, they're not saved at all. So now you've got people in leadership who aren't even saved. In fact, what they've done is they, you know why they go to church services? They go to church services because, you know, those morals. You know, I, I like the Christian morals. You know, to do this and don't do that and don't steal. You know, try to be a good person. Doesn't mean they've ever bowed a knee to Christ. In fact, some of them are honest. I've shared this before. Folks, there's all kinds of people who go to church services. They're not even born again at all. At least this guy will admit it. He's just going to raise his family in a good moral environment. His name is Larry. Let's take a look. I would really call myself an agnostic. Um, I live my life the way I believe it should be lived, which is, as I said, very much uh, along Christian value lines. But, yeah, I, I just don't. I'm not convinced, and quite frankly, I don't, uh, you know, I don't worry about it. I don't really care. I go to a church, I support the church and everything else, and, you know, I'm very much in favor of it. You know, I believe in strong morals that, uh, you know, I have strong family values, and I want to bring them up with my children. Uh, I also have a belief that, you know, my views are my views, and other people believe what they want to believe, and I don't want to get in arguments or try to convince them otherwise. Logically, intellectually, I have a hard time grasping that Christianity is necessarily right. I mean, why, I mean, take Judaism, for example, why isn't that just another mythology? Why isn't that, I mean, the Romans had mythology, Greeks had mythology, so, you know, why isn't Christianity just another mythology? I mean, you look at Jesus Christ and you say, had to be a phenomenal human being, a phenomenal leader. He was able to, you know, call himself the Son of God, have a bunch of disciples, and get a lot of people to believe that he was the son of God and to reaffirm their belief in God. And that then evolved historically into a, a great religion. My view of the uh, afterlife is there is none. Life ends um, when you die. And uh, you didn't exist beforehand and you will not exist afterwards. Going to a church service, bringing his wife and kids, Sitting in the pew, standing up, sitting down, singing, passing the offering plate. Even prayed at the dinner table. Not born again at all. Not even close. I mean, at least he admitted it. And in fact, I've shared this with you before. I used to in ministry just by experience, because I don't know the heart, right? I used to have this rule. I know that anytime, wherever I speak, wherever I pastor, at least in the beginning, that I'm probably dealing with a 50-50 split. That half of these people probably don't know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And I thought I was being generous. And then I remember when I was pastor in New York, I read the biography of Dr. D. James Kennedy. And in his biography, he did the same thing. I go, oh, wow, somebody's got the same theory as me, that there's phony balonies all over the church. Except his number was he believed that 80% of the people typically across the board weren't saved. And then he began to explain his rationale, and that was this. He said he believes that 80% of people who go to church services at any given Sunday are not born again because of the what's called the 2080 rule. That is all across the American church. And we make jokes about it. Where 20% of the people do 100% of the work, while 80% of the people do nothing. And the reason is simple. He said the reason why 80% of those people do nothing is because they're not true Christians. Because how in the world could you be a true born-again Christian and have no desire to serve Jesus Christ, share Jesus Christ, do nothing for Christ, and just sit there? Something's wrong. 
We don't earn our way to heaven, but man, when you understand what he did, woohoo, cake, is there something I could do? Something, anything? But week after week after week after week, and you could give a rip, you never share, you never serve, you could, uh. I don't know who's right. But I'll tell you this, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. Why is the American church so powerless, so gutless, so ineffective, it seems? Because I really think that the American church is flooded with so many counterfeit Christians. They don't have the spirit of God. No wonder everything's all messed up. No wonder the apostasy is going. In fact, you know why? My theory is why the apostasy is going in such high gear is because, listen, the, fa- the counterfeit Christians have made their way out of the pew like Larry. Now they're behind the pulpit. <gasps> you mean to tell me that pastors aren't even saved and they're behind? Yes. In fact, let me just share a few of them that admit it. Okay, watch this. Okay, all across the board. Wes, he's a Methodist, and this was in an interview behind the scenes. He lost his confidence, a Methodist, in the Bible while attending liberal Christian college and cemetery. I mean, seminary. And he says, I went to college thinking that Adam and Eve were real people. He says, now he no longer believes that God exists. This is supposed to be a pastor, week after week behind the pulpit. He said, his church members do not know that he's a what? He's, an, he's a liar. Right? But he explains that they are somewhat liberal themselves, and his colleagues are even more liberal, and they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead literally. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe all those things that would cause a big stir in their churches. Uh, stir. Well, no, that's what Christianity teaches. You don't believe in anything. He's fake. He admits it in the Methodist church, but it's all across the board. Here's Rick. He's a campus minister for the United Church of Christ. He's an agnostic in college, but then it got even worse. He, quote, lost all belief by the time he says he graduated from, once again, seminary. He chose ordination in the UCC. Why? Because that organization requires no forced doctrine. In other words, believe whatever you want. We just need somebody to fill a spot, right? Atheist. He even graduated from seminary uh, cemetery and said, "What? Uh, I'm not going to make it in the conventional church. He knew he couldn't go into a church and teach his own theological views because he didn't believe all that creedal stuff about the incarnation of Christ and the need for salvation. But he remained in the ministry. Why? Because these are my people. This is the context in which I work, and these are the people that I know. Now, in the pulpit, his mode is to talk as if he does believe because, listen to what he says, as long as you're talking about God and Jesus in the Bible, that's what they want to hear. Besides, language is ambiguous, and it can be heard different ways. I don't really believe it, but I'm just going to pepper some Christianese out there. Liar in the pulpit. Okay? Church has no idea. He's lying to him. Daryl, he's a Presbyterian. Uh, He sees himself as a progressive-minded pastor. He wants to see his kind of non-doctrinal Christianity, which means it's not Christianity, right? Give him validity some way. He acknowledges that he's uh, more of a pantheist. You know, all paths lead there all is God, etc., than a theist. And he thinks that many of the more educated members of his church uh, hold to the same liberals as his own. You know, like Larry. He's got a church full of Larrys. And those beliefs or unbeliefs, he stated, quote, I reject the virgin birth. I reject substitutionary atonement. I reject the divinity of Christ. I reject heaven and hell in the traditional sense, and I'm not alone. He said, uh, he's candid. He remains in the ministry for financial reasons. He said, it's how I provide for my family. And he even said, if he openly espoused his beliefs, I may be burning bridges in terms of my ability to earn a living this way. You liar. Go get a different job. You liar. In the pulpit. And the churches have no clue. The church is already not only flooded with Larry's, not you, Larry, a different Larry. I had to clarify. It was on tape. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for you, buddy. 
but now they've moved up into the pulpit. Why is the apostasy so bad? This is one of the reasons why. Oh, here's another one. Adam, he's from the Church of Christ. After years of ministry, he began to lose all theological confidence. He's moved fully into atheist mode, but he continues to lead the church and, quote, worship. What are you worshiping? The wall? Right? And he said, well, how do you do this? And listen to what he says. Here's how I'm handling this issue. Listen to this. What a, what a liar. I see it as play acting. I see myself as taking on the role of a believer in the worship service and performing this atheistic agnostic stays in the ministry because he likes the people and quote i need the job still if he had an alternative source of income he would take it he he feels that's hypocritical but he no longer believes that hypocrisy is wrong one more it's all across the board all across the united states this is john a so-called southern baptist pastor okay he primarily served as a worship leader uh he was attracted to christianity as a what a religion of love you know morals like larry right that's how it all started for him. But his pursuit of Christianity, quote, brought me to the point of not believing in God. And he explains, I didn't want to become an atheist. I didn't plan to become an atheist. I had no choice. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. If I'm being honest with myself, but he's not being honest with his church members, he rejects all belief in God and all Christian truth claims outright. He's a determined atheist. And once again, he even puts a price that he would leave. It, quote, if someone said, hey, here's $200,000, I'll be turning my notice this week because then I can pay off everything. He put a price on it. No loyalty. You're a liar. you got to be kidding me. I like what, uh, believe it or not, you think, oh, I can't believe it. We're living in those days where there's fake passive. Church has been dealing with this for a long time, folks. Listen, this is in 1739, okay? A guy, uh, uh, Gilbert Tennant. Listen to what he said about phony preachers even back then. He said, if they will not remove themselves from the ministry, then the church must remove them. If they lack the integrity to resign their pulpits, the churches must uh, muster the integrity to eject them. Why? Because they are apostates and they will ruin the church. And this is my point, folks. The scripture is clear. Just like Judas, there are people who are in the midst, but that's what they're counterfeit. So you can throw out this story. Oh, I know of a guy one time, and he was on fire, and then he turned away and became an atheist. He wasn't saved in the first place. He was a counterfeit. That answers your question. Right? Now, here's the problem. Here's, this is what makes it so confusing nowadays. At least Larry admitted it on camera behind scenes. At least those fake pastors admitted it off camera in an interview and uh, wouldn't give their full names, okay? But listen, there's a whole group of people today who say, listen, hey, I'm a Christian. But they won't admit that they're fake. They really think they're real. Now, that's what's scary because you know what that means? You know they're headed for? They actually think they're saved, but they're not trusting in the only way to get there. But they're going to church services, probably serving in the church, probably very active in the church. But you know what that means? They're going to die, taking their last breath, going, <sighs> thinking their next breath is going to be in heaven, and they close their eyes, boom, they wake up, and they're in hell. They're fake the whole time. Now, how many guys would say that's got to be the worst, harshest reality for anybody ever to encounter? Well, once again, because God's love, guess what? He gives us signs to indicate when somebody's under that ruse. Okay, how do you know when somebody, and Larry admitted it, those pastors admitted it off tape, okay, but how do you know for these people who say that they're Christians, but they're not? I mean, they're, they're seeking God for the money or morals or some other false motive. How, what's the acid test? How do you know? Well, I'm going to deal with them for scripturally very quickly, what God says. How do you know if somebody's a fake Christian in the church today? That's when they only seek God with their head. 
They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is an indicator. Uh Uh-oh, red flag. Are you sure you're really saved? This is what James says here. How do you know a counterfeit Christian's in your midst? James chapter 2, 14 through 17 and 19. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? What's the answer? It's a hypothetical question. No. Right? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is what? It's dead. You believe there's one God? Good. (laughs) Even the demons believe that. And they shudder in terror. They know better. The Bible says that not all faith is saving faith. And isn't that the buzzword? Oh, I got faith. You guys been here for the Wednesday night studies? How many times do the, the cults use our Christianese? Oh, I believe in Heavenly Father. That's the wrong one, not according to the Bible. I believe in Jesus. Wrong Jesus. When you say he's the spirit brother of Satan or he's the archangel Michael, uh, that's wrong Jesus. Oh, I believe in the gospel. It ain't the same one as ours. It's a false gospel. How many times do people, oh, I got faith? I got, what, what's, his, what's James say? Hey, listen, you can say faith in what? Faith in what? Faith in you, faith in the pew, faith in the couch, faith in the dog, faith in the planet Mars. What? Faith, what, it, it's, it's even the word God. God's generic. God, I believe in God. God, what God? Which God? Who's God? Doesn't mean you're saved. We, we have to get behind the veneer, and that's what James is saying. Not all faith is saving faith. He says, listen, if your faith is not accompanied by appropriate reaction, it's not just fake, it's dead. He's not saying you got to work your way to heaven. Or you? No. He's saying that what we all know, when you are saved, when you're truly born again at the moment of salvation, you're indwelt with who? The Holy Spirit of God. And from then on, you will be perfect. No, we just saw that the last six sermons. Of course not. And that's why God's love is so amazing and wonderful and eternal and forever. It's awesome, right? But guess what? You can't be the same. You can't have this lackadaisical attitude towards sin. Oh, it's no big deal, whatever. Excuse me, the Holy Spirit, if he's in you, he's going to convict you. Didn't you remember that when you first got saved? I, I didn't know hardly any of the, I didn't know any of the scripture before I got saved. But man, before I even came across the scripture, I started going down a sinful route. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's convicting you, right? And so, listen, you can say you have faith, but if nothing changes, I didn't say you have to be perfect. I didn't say you're working your way there because you can't. But if nothing changes, something's wrong. You cannot stay the same. It might be a sign that you got a dead faith. And again, the enemy knows this, so here's what he does, what James is dealing with. He tricks people into thinking that faith is just having a head knowledge. Oh, yeah, I know that God exists, right? You know, the old mental ascent. Or you even, might even add to it. Oh, I believe in Jesus. No different than, oh yeah, he's a, I'm sure he existed in history and whatever. That's not what the Bible means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to believe on what he did, not just him as a, a personage that existed. And even James says, listen, oh, so you believe in God? whoop de doo da Even the demons believe God and they're not saved. If anybody knows God exists, it's them. So giving a mental assent, if that's all you got, James says that's a dead faith. And I really think, folks, that that's a huge syndrome in the American church. How many times, we deal with this all the time. People say, hey, it's, it's no big deal. No big deal not getting involved. No big deal about getting serious about going to church services and helping out and doing all this. I mean, come on, you don't want to be labeled one of those Jesus freaks, do you? In fact, this, this apathetic behavior... It's become so commonplace that we make jokes about it all the time. Like, like this. 
there's these three country churches in this small Texas town, and they're being overrun by these pesky squirrels. And so the first church decided to uh, uh, call a meeting and decide what to do about the squirrels. But after much prayer and consideration, they determined that the squirrels were predestined to be there, and they shouldn't interfere with God's divine will. Well, that didn't fix it. Second church, they met together, and they decided they weren't in a position to harm any of God's creation, so they humanely trapped the squirrels and set them free a few miles outside of town. But three days later, guess what? Squirrels were back. It was only the third church uh, that was able to come up with the best and most effective solution. Listen to this. You see, they decided to baptize the squirrels and register them as members of the church. Why? Because after that, now you only see them on Christmas and Easter. You see, it's funny because it's true. How many times do you see that? Oh, God, where'd you go? If you got raptured, I'm in trouble. A true Christian is not one who lives for God twice a year. You live for God every single day, and God uses you to transform this world. Listen, John Wesley said this. Listen, give me 10 people. Just 10. I don't need a million. Just give me 10 people who hate nothing but sin, who fear nothing but God, who love nothing but Jesus, and we can change the world. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And I got to think, well, maybe this is why the American church is having such a hard time changing this world, and maybe this is why the world is having such an easy time changing the church. Maybe it's because the American church is full of squirrely Christians who are not Christians because they're worshiping God with their head, not their heart. They're fake. That's why there's no power. So that's one category. The second one is when you seek God, how do you know you're dealing with the counterfeit? Oh, you just kind of make it up as you want. You seek God with your thoughts, right? It's up to you. You get to define who he is and how to get there. Let's take a look at this. And this one's very clear. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 19, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Listen, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us if they had belonged to us they would have what remained with us but their going showed that how many none of them belong to us this verse single-handedly stops dead in the tracks the hypothetical scenario oh yeah i know a christian can lose their salvation because i know of a guy who one time went down that aisle and he did this and he got involved he was active he's in, he might even been a pastor and then he turned and he became an atheist what did john say never were if you were you would have belonged because god keeps his own i don't care what you profess i don't care how many years it was but if you turned away and walked from, away from jesus christ you were a counterfeit the whole time isn't that scary to think that that's a reality even today not everybody who goes to a church service really belongs to the church if you start out saying you're following the truth that jesus christ is the only way to heaven and then you turn around and you start following a lie. The Bible says, I didn't, God did. You weren't saved in the first place. And this is what the enemy does. How, tell me this is not a popular lie today. Oh, come on. What are you, an extremist? I mean, surely that's not the only way. What about this way or that way? There's got to be another way. I mean, doesn't God love everyone and all paths lead to heaven? And won't he honor somebody's belief? Well, now you're starting to sound like Oprah Wan Kenobi, right? And the false New Age gospel from her. But that's popular today. Remember, that? Remember, the stat is in the American church, professing Christians, 25% of them, one-fourth of the church, think that that's not the only way. 
These people aren't non-Christians. They're professing to be Christians. And if you're trying to go some other way than the cross, you're not going to heaven. And that's what John says. Hey, I don't care what you say, man. If some, I don't, it could have been one month, could have been one day, could have been 50 years serving faithfully in the church. And if you turned away from Jesus, you were a fake the whole time. One guy puts it this way, dealing with counterfeits. He said, a counterfeit Christian is like a counterfeit $10 bill. He says, suppose you got a counterfeit bill, but you don't know it. So, of course, you think it's genuine, so you use it to pay for some gas or something. He said, but as soon as it makes its way back to the bank, the speller, the, the bank teller spots the phony immediately and says, I'm sorry, this bill is a counterfeit, okay, and takes it out of circulation. He says, now that $10 bill may have done a lot of good while it was in circulation, but the moment it arrived at the bank, it was exposed for what it really was the whole time and immediately removed. And so it is with the counterfeit Christian. They may do a lot of good things in church services for many years, but when they face Jesus Christ at the final judgment, they will immediately be rejected and thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian really is one. And if you profess to belong to Christ, but you walk away from Christ, you never belong to him. You were a counterfeit the whole time. You were worshiping God with your thoughts, not the truth. I got to think about this. Maybe that's why that stat never seems to change. 95% of professing Christians have never once led a soul to Christ. Do you know what the percentage is here in Las Vegas of people who don't know Christ? It hasn't changed as far as I know in almost six years of me being here. It's 95%. 95% of people in Las Vegas don't know Jesus their Savior. Well, then now, isn't it strange that 95% of people who go to church services never lead a soul to Christ? Is the number really that small? That only leaves 5%. Is that what? Why does the American church have zero zealousness for the lost could it be because the majority of the american church is still lost themselves makes you wonder how many counterfeits are there really in the church the third sign is they seek god with their religion and jesus calls this one out they don't trust in the work of jesus christ it's their own religious deeds that'll get them there right? Uh, this is what he says here, Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone, Jesus said, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many, not just a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, <laughs> it's almost like, what, what are we doing in hell? What's going on here, man? I thought I was going to heaven. D didn't we prophesy in your name? Uh, and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Notice their response was, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again for the... What they turned to for justification. Look at what I did. This religious stuff I was involved in. How could I ever go... You never trusted Christ. And what's Jesus say? Then I will tell them plainly, I what? Knew you once and you lost your salvation? Uh-uh. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Not everybody, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, who says, Lord, Lord, really belongs to the Lord. Jesus said, if your faith is based on pious religious deeds instead of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. And this is what the enemy does. He tricks people into thinking that if you want to get to heaven, then be that person. You know, show up to church services once in a while. And then if you really want to make sure you're in like Flint, do some good deeds once in a while. You know, help out, stack some chairs. 
right? Do that, VBS, you know, whatever. You see kids slaving around, you know, help them out, right? Out in the community, help somebody with a flat tire. You know, just do some good religious deeds, man, you're in. Folks, Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to get religious. He died on the cross so we could have a relationship with him. And it's my contention that this religious attitude, you're just punching your time clock. There's no love. There's no relationship. It's all dry, stale, boring, man-made religion. You just show up when you have to, or you feel guilted into it. Oh, I guess I haven't been there in a while. I guess I better go on. I really think that's an epidemic in the church. In fact, many people who claim to be alive in Christ are actually dead to Christ. And one pastor figured out how to expose that. Listen to his technique. There's a, a, a new minister in a small town in Oklahoma, and he spent the first four days, he just got the new pastor, right? Four days desperately calling on the church membership. The people said, I'm a member of the church. He called on the church membership and begged him to come to his first services, but tries he might, nobody came. Nobody. So he decided to place a notice in the local newspapers stating that the church was dead. And that it was his duty to give the church a decent Christian burial the following Sunday. Well, of course, this got the curiosity of the whole town and everybody. And when they got there, they saw a coffin smothered in, in, in uh, flowers right in front of the pulpit, man. Couldn't miss it. And after the minister, he read the obituary for the church and delivered a eulogy. He invited the congregation to come and step forward and pay their respects to the dearly departed. And without a moment's hesitation, a long line formed, okay, uh, because everybody couldn't wait to see what in the world was inside that coffin. But as soon as each person peeped into the coffin, a strange thing happened. They, they looked at it and quickly turned away in utter guilt. Why? Because the minister had placed a large mirror inside the coffin, which meant everybody saw themselves. Smart guy. I like that guy. Folks, we need to place a mirror right now in these last days before the American church today. And I'll say this. If you have to have your arm twisted, if you have to be begged, if you have to, you're trying to guilt me into it. If you have to, if somebody has to beg you to give up your time, your treasure, your talents, your tongue for God, maybe it's because you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you got a religion with if you can't ever seem to get motivated to come hear the word of God and to worship God through music at least just once a week, then maybe you'll hear from God, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you because you were fake the whole time. You're worshiping God with a religion, not a relationship. The fourth and final one, you're seeking God with your lips. How do you know somebody's a fake Christian? Well, you're giving God lip service is what it's called. I didn't say that. Uh, the Bible did. Let's take a look at that text real quick. Titus chapter 1, 15 through 16. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and what? Unbelieving. They're fake. They're phony the whole time. Well, how do you know? Because their minds and consciences are defiled. Such people, what? They claim to know God, but they deny him how? By the way they live. They are despicable. They're disobedient. They are what? Worthless for doing anything good. And so now what we see here is we don't certainly work our way to heaven. Of course not. It's only the cross of Jesus Christ. But again, when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, what's a natural desire? Hey, can I do something? Anything? Come on. Yay. Woo. Right? 
The Bible says not everyone who claims to know God really knows God. In fact, if all you do is give God lip service instead of life service, Paul said it, that your so-called faith is worthless. And that's what the enemy does. How many times have we been fooled for this? Opened up with a joke on politics. How many times have we been fooled by this? All you got to do is just say you're a Christian. And somehow you are. That doesn't make you no Christian. Right? You can say you're a Christian all you want. That doesn't make. And, but that's what the aim is. You just say you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then, then what you do is you think that you can, you know, and we make a joke about this one. Right? As long as you go to a church service on Sunday, you'll be okay. Now, you, what, what, what do you say? You set up a storm six days a week. You go to a church service on the seventh, you're all right. Paul says, no, you're not. Something's horribly wrong. Anybody can claim to know God all they want, but if you deny this claim by the way you live, you're being a hypocrite. In fact, it's not just detrimental to your soul. It might be detrimental to the souls around you. One guy said this. Listen, the number one cause of atheism, why do people turn away from God? Listen, the number one cause of atheism is Christians. Those who profess that anyway. Those who proclaim God with their mouths but deny him in their lifestyles are what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Of course. That's a whole study that we've been on, the character of God. Living like what? Practical atheists. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I'm a... But you act like he's not even a part of the equation. Oh, you put on a show once a week. And Pastor Billy's going along, so now it's over two hours you've had to deal with this. You're breaking your record, man. If he doesn't hurry up and end, it's going to be two and a half hours you had to act like a Christian. But isn't that the game? I deal with this all the time in counseling. Teenager busted up inside. You don't know my parents, Pastor Billy. Oh, they look good when they come here. But as soon as we're in the parking lot, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Just before you get to the parking lot, put it back on. And hopefully Pastor Billy doesn't go over two hours. A true Christian is not one who lives for God just one hour a week, two hours a week, two and a half if the sermon goes long. They live for him every single day of their lives. And listen, God will use you to light this world on fire. Once more, John Wesley said this. People ask him, why did you, how, why do people come for miles, miles, right? This is before cars, the whole, they didn't have advertising, none of this. Why do people come for miles to hear you preach? And listen to what he says. It's simple. If you light yourself on fire for Jesus Christ, people will come for miles just to watch you burn. <laughs> and I got to think about, well, wait a second, man. I mean, this he was a part of great revivals in America with George Whitfield and others. It's like, wow, how come, why is it the American church can't seem to get the revival, the fire of revival burning across our nation anymore? Maybe it's because the American church is full of people who don't have the fire of God. Because they don't really belong to God. Because they're worshiping God with their lips, but not their life. You can claim you're a Christian all you want. Anybody can put on an act for a couple hours. We just saw those pastors. That's what they do every week. Play acting. But listen, even this guy knows something's wrong with that. Real Christians don't do that. We'll close in prayer after this. I think
think that if you're a true Christian, you don't consider Christianity just a part of your life. It is your life. And if you follow the teachings of the Bible, specifically uh, Mark 16:15, which says, go out into the world and preach the good news to all creation, then uh, you have an obligation to share that faith with others. If you saw a building on fire and you knew there were people in it, and you knew that you were capable of running in there and saving someone who wouldn't be able to help themselves, if you knew that you could help them, would you just stand there and do nothing? And unfortunately, by not clearly seeing the issue, I think that's what a lot of Christians do, is they just stand there. I think, by and large, most of it is that most Christians are not really well educated as to their own religion's position on various issues. They consider worshiping Jesus to be part of their lives, but not their primary purpose. And I believe that true Christianity considers it to be the primary purpose. And if you're a true Christian, you believe that those who are not Christians, those who have not followed the teachings of the Bible, uh, that have not accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior, those people aren't going to heaven. They're going to hell. Hell's not a fun place. I have heard Christians, definitely, uh, that have the view that everyone is entitled to their own belief. And that's not necessarily a bad position to have, but if you believe that what they believe is going to earn them a place in eternal suffering, then there's a problem with that, in that you're allowing them to be tortured for eternity, while at the same time believing that you shouldn't save them from that. It's, it's very awkward. If you really believe that uh, people who are not Christians are going to hell, then that is a, a very serious consequence. And if you don't take that seriously, I think that you might be compromising your own belief system. Those who do take their faith seriously, they need to encourage or teach those who might not how important that is. Sometimes I think Christians are afraid of being labeled as a Bible thumper or uh, to have uh, negative connotations associated with them. But that's not necessarily negative if you're a Christian. I think it's something to be proud of. There's nothing to be ashamed of if you're a Christian about the Bible or being a Bible thumper. It's something to be proud of. It's something that you take seriously. And it's something that you should encourage others to take seriously as well and it might require you to challenge yourself to you know stand up in front of crowds to talk to people that you don't know missionaries work in places uh, where the predominant religion is not Christianity and that's a completely different scenario uh, than you know in most parts of the United States but they, they take it in stride they accept it and they move on you shouldn't take rejection personally but consider it uh, that you gave them a fighting chance. You give them a fighting chance at heaven. Uh, even, if, even if you do have to uh, risk offending someone or risk a friendship, uh, it's a simple matter of weighing priorities. If I were a Christian, of course I would take the Bible seriously. I respect people who take their beliefs seriously. And I would take the Bible's teachings seriously. Among those teachings is the idea that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And those that accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior go to heaven. Those that don't go to hell. And the implications of that are very far-reaching. And you're an atheist? Yes, I sure am.
could say all the right stuff. You can claim to be a Christian all you want. But if you refuse to live like one, even an atheist knows. You might be a counterfeit. Just like Judas. Just like Larry. Just like those fake pastors. And if that's you here today, listen, you can fool me. But you can't fool God. And if you're not saved, and if you're not really in love with Jesus Christ, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commands. You don't work your way to heaven. But if there's never come a day when you've truly called upon his name, truly trusted only in his work alone on the cross, believed in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you are not saved. Is that a risk you really want to take? You need to get saved now. But that answers the hypothetical scenario. Oh yeah, I knew of a guy one time and he... Listen, the scripture is clear. When you're truly a born again child of God, there is no way that you could become a child of God and then somehow, someway, end up being a child of the devil again. That is a false teaching. That is blasphemy. The cross of Christ forgives us of all our sins, even the sins we don't even know of, past, present, future. And that's why the scripture is clear. If you belong to him, his love endures for you how long? Forever. Don't miss Part two, next time. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness, or the wrong things that we have done, have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin, or unholiness, uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy, we're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay? Well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, 
And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, 
I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.